Good morning, everyone. Glad to have you here with us this morning for our Bible study time. Uh, if you are following along in the uh, class book, we'll be on page 128 this morning, lesson 23. And be opening your Bibles to uh, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. Nehemiah, chapter 2. Kind of have a, a simpler lesson this morning, so I hope that you guys will, will assist me with some discussion um, because I don't have a whole lot of complicated points, but I do think it's a good, uh, a good example and a good lesson for us to learn from. So if you'll be turning to Nehemiah chapter 2, we'll get there in a second. First, I wanted to pose kind of a question for people to think about. Um, has anyone ever done uh, a home restoration project? I see people rolling their eyes, so that must be a yes for some people. What was that experience like? <laughs> do what? Get a professional to do it. It's almost like building a new house. Okay, what else? Chaos. Chaos, okay. Expensive, you say harrowing? Okay, that's a good word, okay. Disruptive, okay, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, so it's a, not that I can really speak to personal experience so much, but from what I understand, it's a, it's a, a complicated, time-consuming, um, expensive project of love until you start to hate it, and then maybe it's just an obligation at that point, because you're in far too deep to do anything about it other than finish. Um, now specifically though, I want us to think about the idea of restoration, not renovation, right? What's the difference between renovation and restoration? You restore it to the natural restoration. Okay. And renovating, you just change it around. Okay, was someone else saying something over here? Right. Right, right. Right, yeah, so everyone kind of seems to be on the same page here. The idea of, of restoration is you have something original and you want to go back to the original. Some, a renovation is something where you're taking something old but you're making it newer, right? Um, so, for example, I would say that, that, that mine and Allison's house was a, a renovation type project more than a restoration because we didn't take everything back to the way it originally was, but we took what was there and kind of made it our own. Um, if you've seen some of these TV shows now, it could be HGTV or it could be, uh, I think there's like car restoration shows and other, other shows about taking antiques and, and kind of bringing them back to what they used to be. Um, there's, a big, there's a big market for that. There's a big community of people that are interested in that and do it as a hobby um, because it's something that they enjoy doing. But from going to the really ugly picture you see at first where there could be rats living in the kitchen and someone did not treat this kitchen well or, or whatever to, you know, shiny, a shinier version of what it kind of looked like before, but now it actually looks like what it was supposed to look like. And it's been given the care and the attention that it needed to, to be what it was before. Um, 
there's a lot of work involved, right? To, to take that car and restore it to what it used to be. There's a lot of time investment uh, required. There's a lot of resources, personal resources, right? It's expensive. Restoration projects are expensive. Um, and so I want us to kind of put that in the back of our minds, not only the idea of restoration, but the cost, right? Um, the cost in time, the cost in resources, the cost in money, um, and, and sometimes an emotional cost, right? All right, so let's get into Nehemiah chapter two. Um, the, the question for this lesson uh, in the book is, why is thy countenance sad? And at first, when I saw the, the question on the list of topics, I thought, okay, this is going to be a rhetorical question that I can kind of uh, get all abstract on and, you know, just kind of, um, uh, I guess, just, just talk a, a whole lot. But then when I got into the, the text and realized what the text was and, and read the text for myself, it's a very practical, you know, real-world question, right? This isn't something that's being asked to make a point. This is something that's truly being asked in earnest to provide an answer. So uh, the key text is Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 2. And it says, So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Okay? Not a whole lot of context there yet. But we see that there's this king asking the question, you know, why are you sad? You appear to be well, and yet there's something that's bothering you. And so I want to know what's on your heart. Now... What we're going to do is, is take some of Nehemiah chapter 1 as background context. And then we're going to get back to verse 2 of chapter 2. And then we're going to read on a little bit more to see kind of what happens. Um, but first, we're going to talk a little bit about Nehemiah. So, so the, the name Nehemiah uh, means something along the lines of consoled by Jehovah. Which is very appropriate considering the text we just read, right? Because he was... He was um, sad. He was, you know, disturbed. And so this idea uh, of God consoling, of God bringing about, um, you know, a resolution to whatever was bothering him, that's, that's pretty appropriate uh, for this lesson this morning. But he was a Jewish exile, and he was a cupbearer. Oh, uh, he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes uh, of Persia. We learned that in uh, chapter 1. And so this is taking place in the Persian Empire. We're not in uh, Jerusalem right now, right? We're not in Judah. Uh, we're, we're way far off, um, somewhere around modern-day Iraq or Iran uh, in, in the Persian Empire. Um, the city was, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but it looks like Shushan, which was 220 miles east of Babylon. Okay, so think about the Babylonian captivity. Now we're going even further away from Jerusalem, 220 miles east on the Tigris River. All right. And then when is this happening? Again, we learn in uh, chapter 1, this happened in the 20th year of the reign of this Persian king. Roughly 13 years after uh, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, okay? So if you, if you think back, kind of this restoration of the, the remnant going back into Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity. Um, you have uh, Zerubbabel bringing people over, and then later on you have Ezra bringing people over, and, and now you have Nehemiah, who's going to take on this, 
this task to bring more people back into Jerusalem and, and kind of restore uh, what used to be. And so that's the context of what we're talking about in this passage. We're, we're in a faraway land. We're under uh, a king who is not Jewish, who's not a follower uh, of God. Um, and we have this, um, this Jewish person, this, you know, from the people of God serving under this king as the cupbearer. Now, just an aside, and I don't know if this is um, a fully accurate reading, but I thought it was a little funny. What was the job of a cupbearer for a king? He tasted the food. Yeah, he, he, he tested out the drink, right? You know, he, he was the one who made sure that the drink was not poisoned because a common way of killing the king in these times was to poison his drink. And so a cupbearer made sure that what was going into that cup was not poisoned, that it was safe to drink. And so in verse two, when the king asked Nehemiah, why are you sad because you don't seem sick? I'm wondering if the implication there is, well, obviously you're not poisoned because you would have been testing my drink and so something else must be wrong, which kind of gives a little bit of a darker context um, to this conversation. But nevertheless, he was serving in a palace in a faraway land. But he was concerned for his people. So let's, um, let's start reading in Nehemiah chapter 1. If somebody would pick up in chapter 1 and just read verses 1 through 3. So uh, Nehemiah kind of the, the book explains where Nehemiah is at the time, mentions that he speaks with uh, some of his brethren, uh, and of course, naturally, he asks, you know, how are how are my people doing? Because I'm in a faraway land and I haven't seen them, and so how are things going back home? And, and the response is not quite what you'd want to hear. What does he say? Yeah, I mean, Jerusalem's in ruins and, and the people are suffering. The remnant that is there is suffering. And so when we want to talk about this question being posed, why is, why is your countenance sad? Why do you look sad? I think the first answer we can give is that Nehemiah knew that his people were suffering, right? That they were enduring affliction. Um, if you were here on Wednesday night and... Uh, Don Blackwell was here, and he mentioned some commentaries that GBN had. And so I went and looked up uh, the Nehemiah commentary last night and uh, was reading through it. I found a, what I thought was a pretty good quote. So if you'll bear with me here for a second. How low the community of the Palestine Jews had fallen is apparent from the fact that from the time of Darius to the seventh year of Artaxerxes, there is no history of them whatever, and that even after Ezra's government uh, brought to them, they were in a state of affliction and reproach in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. 
Their country pillaged, their citizens kidnapped and made slaves by their heathen neighbors, robbery and murder rife in the very capital, Jerusalem almost deserted, and the temple falling into decay. So that's pretty serious, right? That sounds like a pretty serious situation, not really, not really a place that you'd want to go home to. Um, they mentioned that the wall was broken down and the gates were burned with fire. Now, if, if you're in this time period um, and you're trying to protect yourself from your warring neighbors, you kind of want to have a wall and gates. Otherwise, they're just going to walk into the city and take what they want, right? They do whatever they want. And so you can imagine between the, the physical um, uh, damage and decay to the city combined with probably the social issues, right? The, the, the personal issues, the lack of leadership, uh, both spiritually and socially, um, probably had a, a really bad influence and impact on the people in Jerusalem. And so um, they were suffering persecution, they were suffering affliction, probably not only from their enemies, but probably from each other. If there was, if there was crime going on in the city because people were, were desperate, there was probably persecution and affliction coming from one another, which um, is also unfortunate. And so this is the situation that Nehemiah is given when he asks, you know, how are things going? Well, the answer is they're, they're not going very well. All right, so let's continue now. Uh, let's read verses uh, 4 through 9. Somebody will read verses 4 through 9. All right, thank you. Um, so, so I want to present a second reason. You know, I don't think that we necessarily have to just say that he was sad for one reason. Um, we learned that the people were suffering, but all, what also do we learn about the people of God at this time? Yeah, they had disobeyed, they had sinned, right? They were not living faithfully. And 
I think it's safe to say that the first, these first two issues are related, right? Um, when I was up here a few weeks ago, we talked about sometimes suffering is brought upon yourself. And, and God had been very straightforward um, with his people that you know, your unfaithfulness will cost you. That there will be consequences for unfaithfulness. And so much of their suffering was self-inflicted because of the sins that they had committed because of the unfaithfulness and because of what they had done. And this is nothing new you know, to the study of the Old Testament, right? From the time of the wilderness, to the judges, to the kings, to the divided kingdom and exile and prophets coming um, throughout the Old Testament, we see this pattern of, of unfaithfulness. Um, but specifically, in this is, instance, Nehemiah is aware and knows that the unfaithfulness of the people of God had caused them to come to ruin, both spiritually, but also in a physical sense. That the city representing the people of God was also crumbling. There was a physical manifestation of the shape that the um, Jewish people were in. Do you see that? That symbolism there? Not only are they spiritually crumbling, but there's a physical aspect of this that's being shown to us as well. And so Nehemiah understands this, and he immediately goes to prayer. He fasts, he mourns, and he prays to God, and he asks for what? Mercy, mercy right? He asks for mercy. Um, so, so I think that's the second, second thing we can, we can talk about that, that's troubling Nehemiah here. All right, um, if someone will pick up and read verses, let's see. Let's read verse um, 10 of chapter 1 through verse 2 of chapter 2. So, if you're following the, the timeline here, uh, they were in the, the winter residence, the winter palace in uh, chapter 1, and based on uh, scholarly research and, and our understanding of the, the Jewish calendar at the time, we're looking at roughly November, December time frame at the beginning in chapter 1. Now, in chapter 2, he's, he's talking to the king about four months later, three to four months later. And so he's been mourning and fasting and praying for months. And based on what we see here, he had so far not um, betrayed his emotions to the king. He, the, the king had not noticed. But there came a time where Nehemiah decided that there was action that needed to be done. And so he prayed um, for God's favor and for God's help 
in speaking to the king and addressing the king. And then eventually he goes forward and he shows his sadness, okay, which kind of invites the conversation. He doesn't, he doesn't directly approach the king. He invites the king in a way to talk to him. Um, so then I'm going to go ahead and read a couple more verses to give some additional context. Um, picking up in verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. All right? So I think a third and final point on what had troubled Nehemiah, what had made him sad, I think is shown in the end of the reading in chapter 1. He realized that his people needed leadership. He realized that his people uh, needed direction and assistance. And he realized that if no one else was going to do it, it was going to need to be him. And he was going to have to do it at great personal cost. Because imagine, he's living in the palace, right? He's a trusted member of the king's you know, inner circle to some extent, obviously, protecting him against assassination. And so he's got a very good, comfortable life, right? But having been faced with the, the challenges and the problems uh, impacting God's people, he makes a decision that I'm going to risk my life asking a request of the king. And if the king grants my request, I will be leaving this you know, life in the palace that I've been enjoying. That there's a need um, for God's people that, that I can fill and I'm going to have to make some sacrifices to do it, right? Think back when we talked about it a few minutes ago to the cost of restoration. He sees an opportunity here, and he realizes that this is an opportunity where I can, I can help. And so he makes a decision to speak to the king and ask. He takes great personal risk, and he takes on a great burden voluntarily. And he, again, he, he prays about it, um, and fortunately the, the king, you know, grants his request, and as you continue to read through chapter 2, you read about um, what Nehemiah asks for to help him start that project, and then his travel um, back to Jerusalem. And so I think that's, you know, n not only was he sorrowful, sorrowful for his people, but I believe there was probably a weight on him, right, a personal weight of conscience, knowing what he was about to have to go through, because it's not going to be easy. And so I believe that's also something that kind of revealed itself, the seriousness of the situation um, in his approach to the king. So let's think a little bit now about what this means for us, all right? Uh, again, we're, we're looking through the Old Testament to learn from these questions uh, because we hope to take some spiritual truths out of them, right? It's, it's not simply that we want to you know, read a story in the Bible for the sake of reading it. We want to learn from it. And so what are some lessons that we can take from this example of Nehemiah? First of all, we need to recognize that 
Okay. Okay, so so kind of the idea of you need to first, you know, rightly diagnose the issue, understand the issue, before you can take action to address it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right, so right. The, the Old Testament is full of, of people of God in foreign situations who have such a sterling reputation that they are trusted by people around them who don't know God, right? Um, uh, what are some examples? So we have Nehemiah, obviously, um, Daniel would be a good example, right? Um, Joseph, a good example. And Esther. So that's a, a good reflection on the people of God that you know, this didn't just happen in a moment, right? There had been trust that had been built. And the king knew the type of person that Nehemiah was from serving in his palace. And so by the goodwill that he had built up, he was able to ask this. And that's a reflection on his character and a reflection of how he lived his life daily in the palace, that he was able to approach the king in this way, or at least you know, make this request of the king, and that the king granted it. So yeah, I think that's a good point. Right. Yeah, I mean, we see throughout chapter 1, he, you know, before he goes to the king, right, he goes to the king of kings, or the, you know, he goes to God um, to, to pray, to fast, to mourn, um, to ask his counsel and to ask his, um, I guess, his, his support, his um, guidance. guidance, yeah, to, to make sure that this go successfully, right? He asks in, in verse 11 that your servant would be successful and grant him compassion. And so even before he provides his answer to the king, he prays first, um, which I think also kind of ties into the, the type of character that he has and how he approached things. He, he knew where to start, you know, before he uh, started doing anything. I think Nehemiah is, 
um, a good lesson in leadership. And I don't mean formal leadership, right? I think oftentimes it's easy for us to kind of write off people that have titles or positions and say, of course, they're, you know, they're, they're a leader, they'll, they'll lead things. Um, but in Nehemiah's current situation, he was not a leader, right? He was a servant. He was serving in the palace. But he saw an opportunity. And through that opportunity and through his uh, trust in God and through his faithfulness and through his effort, uh, he was able to become a leader for his people. I think some important aspects of this are, first of all, that he, he took initiative, right? He saw a need. He realized that he could help fill that need, and so he took the initiative to go and to do the work. Not only that, but as we see throughout the rest of the book, he had vision, right? He had to have a vision of what things needed to look like and what things needed to be done to, in order to make this restoration happen. Going back to the, the, the restoration conversation at the beginning of the lesson, you got to know what it's going to look like before you get to work, right? If you're going to restore a house or a car or a clock or whatever it is, you're going to need to know what it looks like first before you get to work. Um, I think about uh, if you ever go up into uh, Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge and you see those crazy like statues that the people will make with the uh, chainsaws, you know, just incredible what they can do. They can see that before they do it, right? And they have a vision in their minds of what it's going to look like before they even get to work. And I think in a similar way, Nehemiah had a vision. He, he knew, not, not a vision in a spiritual sense so much, but in the sense of, I know what needs to be done. I know what, you know, a restored Jerusalem is going to look like. And so that's what drove his action. And that's that's kind of the other point I want to bring out, is he took action, he took initiative, and then he followed through with it, right? He saw it through to the end, and he helped complete this restoration of God's people. And God always provides a pattern for us to follow. We don't have to come up with the idea. Mm -hmm. We have to follow the pattern. And if you start departing from the pattern, it's not going to be right. So. Right. The, the good thing is we're not alone in any of this, right? We, we have, you know, what God has given us in, in order to understand where we need to be, where we need to go, the, the pattern, as you mentioned. And we also have, of course, our, our in, in this sense, our people, our church family, um, who are able to help us. Because, of course, Nehemiah didn't do this on his own, right? He had to get people to help him. He had to get people to help do the work. He had to get people to help plan it and, and even defend the city while they did the work. And so it was a team effort. Um, that he pulled together in order to get this done. Right. The, what I mentioned before, those, those shows you see on TV and they start tearing up the house and they realize, oh, it's a lot worse than I expected, right? It seems like almost every episode there's something worse than they were expecting. I guess you have to have some sort of drama for the TV audience. But, you know, you uncover something that you didn't realize was as bad as you thought. 
but yet he still persevered. And as Kay mentioned, you know, this is all, these are all good signs of leadership. And so coming back to the application and coming back to, you know, present day, where you're sitting in the church, you know, what opportunities are there? Are you looking for those opportunities to, you know, take the initiative in the church, in the work of the church? Are, do you have a vision uh, of what the church should be? Because I fear oftentimes we're tempted to be like the remnant in Jerusalem and just sitting around where we're at. And I think when leadership is manifested in the church, whether that is from an elder or a deacon or from any member, it's because they see something, they see a need, right? They see an opportunity and they take the initiative to go make sure that opportunity um, is taking, taken advantage of to benefit the congregation and to benefit the Lord's work. And so that's really where I want to kind of steer our conversation to end today is this thought about, you know, restoration is an ongoing process, right? And we're seeking to continue to restore the church to what it needs to be, what it should be. And so am I thinking personally, am I looking for those opportunities where I can step in and do something to impact that effort, right? And maybe it's not coming in and taking charge and directing a whole bunch of people to, to build some huge, you know, um, project. But I don't subscribe to the thought that there's nothing for you to do. And so for each of us individually, you know, the challenge I want to pose when we get to applying these lessons and applying the example of Nehemiah is, you know, are you praying for the church? Are you mindful of, of the church and the work thereof? Do you see a need? Do you see a problem or a challenge? And are you taking the initiative to do something about it? Because, you know, we talk often, people have different talents. People also have different sensitivities. People notice different things. People notice different deficiencies or different needs. There are some things that perhaps this congregation needs that I'm not even aware of, and I can't do anything about that because I don't know. But some people might, right? Some people might be aware of a need or an opportunity or a job that needs doing. And so how do we, how do, we do that? How do we become people that take the initiative and that have a vision for what the church could be um, in three years, five years, 10 years? How do we become those kinds of people? Okay, we have to care. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's a fair point, right? Because you have to make sure that, ooh, you have to make sure that you got yourself right first, right? Just like Nehemiah, right? He had this lifestyle, he had this faithfulness, and part of that, I think, was him being attuned to the needs of others, right? Because we see his response. You know, he could have said, oh, that's a shame, poor Jerusalem, I really hate to hear that, and go on with his life, but he didn't, because he cared, right?
right? He, he reached out, right? He didn't just take it on himself, which is a great way to get yourself burned out, you know, and not finish what you wanted to start. But he reached out to other people and he stirred in them the realization that, hey, we can do this, right? This needs to be done and it's something that we can do, which is, again, Right, he didn't just delegate to everybody, he was doing the work as well. Right. Right, I mean, if you, if you read through the book, it was not always sunshine and roses. There were difficult times, but yet he made sure that you know, we stay to the vision, stick to the vision, stay in prayer, we can do this, even if it's difficult, we can make it through. Sam, what did you have? Right, which I think goes to the point Cam made a second ago, is that he, he was among the people, right? He wasn't over the people. He was part of the work. Now, he may have been the one helping to organize a lot of things. Again, he was the one that had the vision and also the resources, thanks to the king and the authorities. But he was with the people, right? He worked with them. <laughs> right. That, yeah, there is no there is no somebody in the church, right? There's there's everybody. Yeah, I mean, again, going back to the, the restoration example and going back to the example of Nehemiah, he, he, personal resources were involved. And when you have a commitment to getting a job done, sometimes it's gonna take some personal investment, right? That could be money, could be time. Uh, whatever. When there's a large group of people, you know, it always seems like there's certain ones that do everything, mm -hmm. and that's like the teaching. Mm -hmm. But God designed us, there's work, and then there's a time for rest. We should be able to share the load. I mean, uh, talk about getting out of your comfort zone, that little cliche. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's get in there and serve and break out of your rest time because everybody needs rest. Yeah, and that, that I guess kind of that's my trouble is okay, I can give you all this stuff, but once this lesson ends, you know, what's going to happen? But yeah, I mean, this, this congregation needs people to do things. I'm not going to. There's always so many men from other congregations where there's diversity. There's 
Right. It's difficult because you don't want to like lecture people that you should be doing more because then the people that do more get you know discouraged because they're not doing enough. Um, but you know, after this lesson ends, I really want you to take it with you. What could you be doing that you're not? Because if you're not growing, right? If you're not getting anywhere spiritually, then then why are you here? Um, there's a lot of work to be done. Just check those sign-up sheets in the back. There's a lot of work. And we need you to be doing it. I think fear is probably one of the greatest uh, challenges the church today faces. Because I see it all the time. People are scared to do stuff. It's going to be okay. No one's going to stone you if you don't do it well. Just give it a shot. All right. Thank you, guys.